0: Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a roundtable style spin off from Adventure Rider Radio that we do each month about motorcycle travel. And on this episode of Raw, episode 70, tackling the psychology of motorcycle travel. Boy, doesn't that sound like a, a lofty title! All that and more coming up. This episode is supported by, supported by Fresh Tracks. Now, before we get going today, I want to give a shout out to some people that have helped the show incredibly this past month. This is our, our support program, all at adventureriderradio.com. You click on support, uh, anything $10 or more. Get you a sticker sent at you, anything $50 or more gets you a shout out like I'm doing right here. So here we go. Tom Toland, Michael Hahi Daniel Jansen, Andreas Shearer, Charles Hamilton, Ben Meek, Bill and Susan Dragu from Dart, Jean-Michel Davino, Douglas McDonald, lori pasco and emmaus moto tours thank you all so much for your support drop by adventure rider click on support and you too can help us out we'd love to get you on our monthly support our patron account that's where you just give a small amount every month and, uh, and that way we can count on it anyway here we go adventure rider radio raw for november 2021 mm-hmm. Recorded live from the Canoe West Media Studio, deep in the boreal forests of North America, this is Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind. Completely unscripted, raw, and personal. My name is Jim Martin, and today, the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet, I am joined by my esteemed regular Overland co-host. I'm going to start with Grant Johnson in British Columbia. Hello, Grant.
1: Hello, everybody. It's good to be back. We've just had a tornado through here, and major windstorm. And now it's bright and sunny. Like what? Wow. Tornado? Vancouver? I heard about the tornado.
0: Bizarre. That's That's it. You haven't had a tornado in your area for 40 years or something?
1: Uh, at least that. I mean, I don't remember one. That's for darn sure. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, but anyway, other than that, all good and working well, getting things done, getting my garage sorted out, getting the workbench organized. And I'm going to actually be able to work on bikes this winter. Wow. I'm just chicken pink.
0: <laughs> that is nice. That is really nice. And speaking of winter, Michelle Lampfair, I'm sure is in winter now, Michelle.
2: Well, um, actually we're calling this second autumn. It's 48 degrees here today, which is like eight Celsius. Anything above freezing is a good day.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. So you got rid of all your snow that you had last time we talked, which was a month ago, you know, yeah. earlier in the season.
2: Yeah. And it's snowed probably, oh, four or five times since then. And we get anything from maybe just a skiff, which is like a half an inch of snow to, I think we've had three or four inches again, but it's all melted off and sunny. So it's a good enough day to ride here. The roads are dry. And I actually went for a ride uh, Saturday, which is Mm. a treat. I, I have a challenge for myself. It's very Unofficial, informal, and I fail it almost every year. But I try to get on the bike and ride at least once, even if it's just around town, um, every month in the winter. And we'll see how it goes. So I've I've done my uh-huh. November ride, and the bike's ready to go for December. Giggle.
0: What What's the <laughs> What's the most stressful month for you usually?
2: Usually January or February, yeah. and it's it's really not so much the cold. I can dress for the cold, but it's uh, it's the ice that I, I worry about. And riding on snow isn't too bad. I've done quite a bit of that, but um, ice is, is the uh, sticking point or not. We'll not see. sticking
0: point, yeah. <laughs> yeah, The lack of sticking point. Does your bike yeah. not get all corroded from the salt or are you not, do you don't have much salt on the road?
2: We use a lot of gravel and sand around here and there is some salt on the highways, but I'm usually out on gravel roads or back roads anyway for better traction. So they're they're not salted.
0: Because uh, even the sand normally, it depends on your climate, of course, but even the sand will have salt in it to stop it from yep. freezing, right?
2: We definitely use salt here, but that's mainly on the highways and paved roads.
0: Mm. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are in Australia. Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Good morning to the both of you. Good morning.
2: Good morning,
3: good morning, Um, and it's raining here. (laughs) We've got, um, is it La Nina coming up? Lots and lots of rain. We had um, three inches or 71 mil for those um, who think in inches. Uh, Two days ago, the shed flooded, the garage flooded, the street flooded, Gosh, I just love spring.
4: Yeah, but I was, I was out riding, so it didn't worry me. I was, I was up somewhere in northern New South Wales. She rang me. the shed's flooding. What do I do? Oh, I let the water go. Bikes will be fine. Yeah, they didn't wash away. So and it's um, oh, I've done I've done a bad thing. Oh, dear. You bought another uh-huh. bike. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Are you
0: serious? You bought another bike?
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I negotiated. I negotiated hard, and uh, I got a bike for a few shekels, which is an old uh, Suzuki GS 1000G, that um, a project bike to do up, something else. Mm.
3: And the question on everyone's lips is, can this marriage be saved? <laughs> <laughs> I just don't hey, know how Brian, you spread thanks.
0: yourself so thin, Brian. I mean, that, that's a lot of bikes to, to maintain. I can't even maintain my own bike, and I've got one. Uh, you know, it's a lot of bikes to maintain, <laughs> and
4: but also to exercise. Oh, yeah, I get out most days, I exercise a bike. Um, haven't today. But- and he
3: does come home, get on another bike, and go back out again without coming into the house. So <laughs> <laughs> I just see him going up and down the driveway.
0: <laughs> Let's bring in Sam Manicom from the UK. Hello, Sam.
5: Hello, everybody. Um, Yeah, I mean, the weather forecast uh, report from Exeter is it's pitch black outside. I haven't seen a night as dark as this for a long time, but it's dry and it's been a gorgeous day today. So um, everybody's smiling. Mm. And you're going into winter, of course. Yeah, yeah, November. um, It should be already starting to be frosty here. Um, we've had one or two um, crisp days and I love those days when the sky is just blue and there's a little bit of mist on the ground and there's this crisp in the air and the, the leaves are going all gone and just the light is amazing, isn't it? This low light. I really, really yeah. like it. Um, it's, uh, it's beautiful.
3: Talking about the light, we are surrounded at the moment down here by the Aurora Australis. And uh, I follow a couple of Facebook pages and I am deeply envious of the people that can photograph the purple and the green lights dancing across the horizon. And that is a really special time of the year.
0: Now, is that because of the recent solar flares that have happened that you're getting it or is that normal for you this time of year?
3: It's not normal normal to have so much, certainly. And being seen from central Victoria, not just um, Tasmania and the southern Victorian coast. But the photos are just spectacular, absolutely amazing. Uh, the the Milky Way and Venus is also adding to it, I think. But yeah, it's um, beautiful. I'm, I, it's something I would love to be able to do, and that could be my mission for the next few months to learn how to do it for next Aurora Australis season.
4: Yes, we've got some good viewing points here, but it's not as strong as what it is in the northern hemisphere. Your Aurora up there, but mm. um, the, the photographs are just fantastic.
0: It's incredible stuff. I've seen it one time. I remember I was, I was driving on a highway, I think in Alberta, it was wintertime and there was, there was a lot of Aurora Borealis. It was right down just above the truck. And I stopped and I got out and I stood in the back of the the pickup and I reached up to try and touch it. Like it was that close. I couldn't quite Uh get to it. It was a little bit higher than that, but it was, it was like sort of creating like smoke, like a greenish whitish smoke. It was, it was incredible.
3: We were in, um, Dawson City yeah. and we were camping in the campground and, of course, um, as they would love to do, they put the tents right down the back of the campground as far away as possible from the toilet and shower block um, and in between us and the toilet and shower block with all the big RVs that didn't need the shower and toilet block because they had their own bathroom, laundry, uh, music room and cinema inside their van. And I was coming back from the uh, middle of the night toilet stop as, as want grizzling to myself about these big RVs and looked up into the sky and it was green.
4: Mm, wow. White.
3: I just, it, it was not very dark. You know, it was a light green, but it was just amazing. And I stood outside the ticket, Brian, Brian, Brian. <laughs> and he finally <laughs> woke up and came out and, you know, within a few minutes it was gone. But that was such an experience.
0: So today – I kind of think what we're doing is we're talking about psychology and motorcycle travel because we've got two questions from listeners um, uh, that we're going to discuss today. And it, it seems that this is what we're going to end up focusing on. So I thought I'd start off by maybe asking somebody, Sam, what type of personality are you? What what personality type? You know, the A, B or C classification, or even if we just stick with A and B, where do you think you fit in on that? I'm a confused mess.
5: <laughs> so A slash B? I don't know, you know. I, I I, seriously, I ride different types of trips. So perhaps it's down to the fact that I'm a Gemini and I've got a split personality. But, you know, one day I, I can be out riding with focus on the ride, and just. I'm not paying much attention to what I'm seeing to the sides. What I'm doing is just focusing on the curves and the the opportunities to speed up and slow down and all the rest of it. And some days that's how I ride. And other days I'm concentrating on the people and the places, but still getting a buzz. I think the key for me is that I just love the flexibility a motorcycle gives me. Um it's also a case of being still open-minded regardless of whatever mood that, that I'm, I feel like I'm in um, because the road, if I let it, changes my plans and some days I can set out just intending to, to cruise and end up stopping and staring at places all the time. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a bit of a mess.
0: Does, does anyone else know what, what personality type you would be called?
2: Uh, no. <laughs> I've actually had to take um, some personality car- tests in my career. So unfortunately, yes, I know more about myself than I want to. <laughs>
5: <laughs> well,
0: you, that's what they tell you. That, what, that's Myers that's and what Briggs. Is that what it is? Yeah. yeah. Which is yeah. often used in the corporate world for, uh, I guess, sussing out the wackos and, and getting the, the good people in the right positions. Uh, that's facetious, of course. That's, that's right. Uh, but um, that, that's part of what they're doing there. And it's kind of creepy, isn't it? To think that they're using something to test you that you don't really fully understand. You know, I mean, you understand what they're attempting. But the questions are are set up in a way to you know have you answer them hopefully honestly and not be able to mess with the test, I guess
2: right right, <laughs> so that you don't manipulate it and uh fool your bosses into thinking you're something you're not mm-hmm. so. <laughs> what did you find out about yourself, Michelle? Just asking uh, I, for a friend. I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> I remember I've taken a few of them. Myers Briggs was one that I took a few times. And it's it's very interesting to see that your personality changes, of course, as you would expect over time. But I remember taking one when I was in a managerial training course and I was a hotel executive, la 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 over multiple properties. Um, supervisor, indirectly of something like 200 employees at the time, and I took this personality test, and it actually came up with a red flag and said that I was very lacking in prudence. Wow! <laughs> so Ow, that might explain, great. yeah, it might explain a lot of my life choices, and, and <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was it was kind of a stinger at the moment. I remember thinking, well, that that hurts, but. Um, I could see, I could see places where it actually, I, I, it was true. And I applied it in real world settings in my job because in my job, I had to put a lot of fires out and you kind of had to run with things and go with the flow. And, and I could see how some of that at, at times, you know, appeared that way. So, yeah, I'm, I'm fairly abnormal otherwise.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Did they give you a talking to about that? Did they pull you aside and say, Michelle, we're concerned. There's a red flag here.
2: No, no, not at all. I mean, I think the, the end results were what they were focused on and, and the bottom line. And, you know, we didn't have safety issues. We had a really well run company and a pretty happy team, profitable, et cetera. And I think that's what they were focused on. So whatever that that it was that I was missing in my personality, I must have been compensating for in, in other ways or whatever.
5: <laughs> and it would have been imprudent for them to say anything.
2: <laughs> That's right. Good one, Sam.
4: <laughs> but it's amazing how you change, though. I used to do them, well, I was working in an area where the psychs would come in and test you about every six months
2: yeah,
4: um, because of uh, undercover type work and all that sort of stuff and making sure you, you, you're still on equilibrium. And it's amazing how much it changed and how accurate they can be. And I mean, they, they, t- they talked about me thinking outside the square all the time. And it's true. It, 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 it's just amazing how, how those things work. Um, but uh, as far as motorcycle riding goes, um, I've worked it out. I'm Jekyll and Hyde. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> just like Sam.
4: <laughs> yeah.
5: No, no, no. Absolutely. That's, Brian's more determined than I am. I'm just confused. <laughs>
3: this is opening up a can of worms, Jim. I think we should change the
5: subject. <laughs> you might be right. <laughs> so, so is Jekyll the, the road riding um let's go for it and, and hide the the amiable meandering character or is it vice versa?
3: No, I think that's right, Sam. I think you've got it right. Um, well, yeah. I think in that case, Brian, you're a Mr. Jekyll and Mr. Jekyll.
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> no. Okay,
0: Brian, so let's say you come up to something that you have to ride through and, and it's something quite complicated and you don't really have a plan. Do you just go for
4: it? Or do you sit down, down and think some go for it. No, go for it. Oh, no, there you go. Um, I told you the story. We were, we were uh, riding through the bush with a mate who's a really, really good off-road rider. And well, I'm the big GS. And we're scrambling over rocks. And we come to this river crossing. And there's three four-wheel drives sitting there looking at this river crossing saying, oh, it's too deep. There's a bloke wading through. And my mate who's a good off-road rider said, stuff this. And he's just hammered and gone straight through this water. And I thought, well, we just got to go. So (laughs) away away we go. And I had water up to halfway up the tank on a GS. Going through this, going through this water, and he's taking photos of me crossing this water crossing, and I've entered it a little bit too quick, you know, and all you you can't even see my helmet when I enter. There's water splash going everywhere. Great fun.
3: I'd just like to say I wasn't there. No, you
4: weren't.
0: Each <laughs> well, that's because you're the voice of reason. That's obvious in the, in the story description. You weren't there,
3: <laughs> and, and I would have been the one wading across the river to see how bloody deep it was. <laughs> <laughs> does does the he see the difference
2: sort of- between being prudent and otherwise? That's where prudence <laughs> doesn't come in handy in that situation.
0: Surely, <laughs> does Brian have your clothing marked by the f- inches as you go up from your feet? I'm just curious. <laughs> sort of
5: a fathom line up the sides.
3: When I had to wade through a river in Nepal, he did say to me if it went inside my boots, it was probably a bit too deep. And it went inside my boots, and I had wet boots and wet socks for about four days. <laughs> <laughs> but
5: we got through. Yeah, we got through now, you, <laughs> need, you need to shrink a bit because um, it's always me when Birgit's only five foot so it's always me that ended up doing the wading across the river She'd have just got lost half the time <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you need to talk to Susan too because I'm the, dip, the human dipstick as well,
4: <laughs> yeah. well this, here's a quote here is a quote
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah I think that's a, a t-shirt up to my waist
3: <laughs> it could be the Next Horizons Unlimited t-shirt Michelle <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: yeah
2: I think it should be.
5: With Grant's picture there.
2: I think it should have a measuring stick on the long sleeve or on the rib cage. So, yeah.
5: (laughs) Yeah. Very nice.
0: Well, let's get to the question here. This is from Brian Groves. Now, I'm going to sort of paraphrase some of this that that he's written here, but, uh, well, maybe I'll read the whole thing. He says, you've talked extensively with your co-hosts and guests regarding taking your time to explore a country and mingle with people versus... (laughs) Brian's idea of riding the road as that's what it's all about. I, I don't know if that's fair, Brian. Is that really, a, I hate to go on with um, well that.
4: Well, that, that's the Jekyll. Okay. So on, I think. So
0: I'll think i leave it there. Then. The summer, because of COVID, I have limited, and this is Brian saying this, I have limited my riding experience to the province of Ontario. That's in Canada. In August, I did a solo ride for eight days, averaging 600 or so kilometers per day. What, what is 600 quick calculation in miles?
2: Uh, 350 wow very good
0: okay more um, okay some days more if it was highway some days less if he was riding fire lanes he says I have to admit after those eight days I had enough this really surprised me he says and it got him to wondering why as normally he could ride double the distance One thing that he considered was that um, this was a solo ride and he says that there was no one to share the day's ride over dinner and drinks, no one to plan the next day's ride with, no one to share a joke with, etc. And he says, this got me to thinking deeper. Could your choice of what is an ideal adventure be related to you being an introvert or an extrovert or having a type A or type B personality? Therefore, my question to the group and our guests, for those that relish mingling and exploring versus the road riders, what is your persona? Now, he has a note in here. Uh, I'm not, uh, sorry, that's my note. (laughs) Okay, so uh, what I was going to say and I'm not sure about the uh, the type A or type B personality because I think that, uh, I'm not sure how that relates to, unless you guys can pull me in on this, but I'm not sure that it's going to relate to riding a motorcycle and, and, and traveling. I'm thinking more of leaning towards the introvert or extrovert because those aren't really, I mean, do you guys see that as type A or type B an introvert or extrovert?
2: Those are different for me, but I actually, I thought about both sides of the question because uh, the type A and B personality is a component of it for me. And it's different than introvert versus extrovert. But I, I looked at both of those.
0: Okay. Well, why don't you, why don't you talk about that?
2: Sure. Um, so it's, it, first of all, it's a great question. It was a lot of fun and got me to thinking, um, really about myself, my writing experiences and, and, you know, how that relates to how I travel. I would say, um, I would describe myself and not to refuse to be pigeonholed in some sort of a box, but apparently I, that's how I work. So I would describe myself not necessarily as introvert or extrovert. and Maybe I'm a little bit like Sam in that I'm a Gemini. I am a little bit of both. I think that when I grew up, um, I was probably more innately an introvert. I went to university to study accounting, all of that. But because I worked in a hospitality company as an accountant. I had to learn to become an extrovert. I had to work with a lot of guests, and eventually, I moved into hotel management. And so, I worked twenty years as a as a professional in a very people oriented industry. So, I've had to learn to become more of an extrovert and come outside of my comfort shell. And how that translates really to my writing is that there are times that I want to ride alone. Um, there's times that I like to be in my helmet. I actually don't have comm systems on my helmet, um, and and I like a little bit of space and a little bit of quiet time and, solitude. Uh, really, if I'm out enjoying a landscape or a road, I really like to be in the moment and I don't want to have comms on. I actually don't ride with music or anything like that. Um, But at the end of the day, I really like having someone to share that experience with. So if I'm traveling with a partner, a friend, a small group of people, I like sitting over a table and really talking about all the different experiences because I like to understand everybody else's experience about it too. And I know there's an old saying that comes to mind, um, shared sorrow is halved and shared joy is doubled. And I very much feel that way when writing, when I have an experience traveling um, riding a certain road. Uh, I really like to share that with people and, and to see how they enjoyed it too. So when I travel, I can lean, I have days where I'm at one end of the spectrum versus another. Some days I feel like an extrovert, maybe when I'm traveling, um, And I've been alone, I've been wild camping or on a road by myself for a few days, and I'm really looking for maybe having a conversation. I might plan my route differently so that I'm going to a town where I can stay in a hostel and stay with some other travelers. Or I might message some friends and meet up with people so that I have some company for a few days. And when I've gotten kind of my fill of company, I may want to go off on my own and do something different. So I can kind of run both ends of the spectrum, introvert and extrovert. And as far as being like, you know, type A or type B, same kind of thing. I I would say that I'm probably a learned type A because of my work in um, executive hotel management. I had to learn to be a control freak and a planner and a warrior. But I would say innately and instinctively, there's a part of me that likes to really chuck all the plans out the window and just kind of go with the flow. So that kind of plays too into how I plan a trip. It just depends on where I'm at. And if I'm traveling long-term, a year, two years, even you know a few months, there are days where I'm more type A and I need to have a plan. I want to know where I'm going to be. And some of that's affected by weather, by seasons, um, the distance between where I'm at and my next destination. A lot of different variables can affect that. And other times when the weather's really good, I'm relaxed. I have nowhere to be. Maybe I just chuck all the plans out the window and go with the flow. So I think I can be a little bit of all of, all of those.
1: Yeah. I have kind of the same, same thinking in a lot of ways on that. Um, but my, fir- my first comment on this reading through it was eight days straight riding, 600 kilometers a day average. Wait a minute. You need a break. Eight days straight is a lot of nonstop writing. I think, especially when you're traveling alone, you need to process all that you've experienced. Whether it's a long evening, relaxing and going over photos or writing a diary or whatever works for you, you need some processing time. Otherwise, it's overwhelming. And when you're with someone else, you'll have conversations about the past day, the things you've seen, as Michelle was talking about. And that's much needed processing time. But you need to process all of that, or your brain is literally, I think, overloaded. It's just too much. And at the end of eight days, your brain's full. Can't take anymore. And I think that's where this I'm I'm done, and I've had enough. That's and I think that's the problem. We've seen this many times with travelers that have gone big trips. We had one guy, I don't remember well, I think I told the story before, but I think it's worth repeating. He left the UK and was halfway through Africa and wrote to the forum and said, hey, guys, I'm, I'm ready to go home. I'm burned out. I'm fried. And so it, in the conversation, we discovered that he had been riding every single day for three months, nonstop. Of course he's fried. You, you need to think of riding as, as a job. You, you ride five days a week and then you take a couple of days off at least or ride two days and take a day off, whatever works for you. But you you can't ride nonstop. It's exhausting mentally and physically. I think people need to keep that in mind. Don't overdo it. Um, last summer I rode five days straight off road and at the end of five days off road nonstop, yeah, I was pretty fried and I really didn't want to do the sixth day that I had originally scheduled. It was just too much. So I think that's important to keep in mind. Um, and on the personality side, I'm like Michelle, I'm a mix. Or Brian, whatever suits the day, if I'm out for an easy road ride with Susan, yeah, I'm an amiable and we're out there taking it easy and relaxing and it's a fun ride. But if I'm out with some friends or I'm off dirt riding, then I'm type A, look out, here I come. (laughs) I don't know how to go slow. Well... I sort of do. I have to really think about it though. <laughs> Susan made me promise to slow down. Um but I mean I'm an X racer and when I see something that looks like fun, I can't help but just go. Go for it as best you can. Um it's like Susan gave me a t shirt just recently. <clears throat> and oh where'd you go? I'm just trying to remember exactly what it says, I don't, I don't want to mess it up. Um I'm pretty confident my last words will be, "Well, shit, that didn't work." <laughs> 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 he knows me too
2: well. <laughs> There's another T-shirt in the making, Grant. <laughs>
5: mm-hmm. Oh yes,
2: <laughs> indeed. Uh, Produce uh, our,
5: um, our raw clothing line. <laughs>
1: yes, <laughs> but it, it's, it's true, you know, you, you you get out and you're on your own, or you're with friends doing an off-road ride, and you see some gnarly bits. Well, yeah, you know, you just kind of have to go for it sometimes. And like Jim asked, do you plan this gnarly bit? Well, I'll look at it and I'll plan for it. And by the time I get to it, I realize, nah, that plan didn't work. First rock, I got bounced in another direction and I had to do it differently anyway. So, yeah, I kind of think about it, kind of have an idea and make sure that I know where the nasty bits are. Um, But most of it is just get on the bike. Stand up, keep your feet up, keep balance, stay on top of the bike, and go, and and that works a lot of the times. On on street, uh, I've been known to ride too quick.
4: And, <sighs>
0: Yeah, I mean the police have chased you down, so you you've had to outrun them and hide in garages. We've heard about that kind of <laughs> stuff. <laughs> I
4: think it's still a fine waiting here somewhere for you, Great. <laughs> I'm sure well, there's
1: one up for me later.
4: <laughs>
1: yeah, there, there's a couple out there, I think. <laughs> but that's
0: changing your riding style with your mood. Does it, and Michelle? Maybe you can chime in on this because you've done more of these tests probably than any of us. I haven't done one before. I know about them, but. Does does every personality not have some variance in there? Are you not stuck in one personality type or the other?
1: Everybody's flexible. Everybody moves around. I'm used to the four personality types, the analytical, driver, amiable, expressive. I think it's much better than type A, type B. And I'm all over the map on that. I mean, I've taken tests several times. And technically, theoretically, usually I'm an analytic driver, but I'm also strong expressive, and I can definitely be very amiable. We all change depending on circumstance, depending on our mood. Did we just have a big hit of coffee or not? Uh, was it a beautiful sunny day? Was yesterday a good day? Was it a bad day? Did you get bad news? Did you get a raise? Did you not get a raise? All these things will bump you around in your mood and where you on how, how you react to circumstance. I think we're all flexible, but we're all tend to lean in a particular direction, and I think it's it's valuable to to know that about yourself. I used to be a very strong driver, and I have moderated that a lot. But it's I've had to actually think about moderating the driver side of me and think, you know, just back off, just take it easy, you know, listen to other people's ideas and things like that. And I think that as we get older, we get much much smarter at that. I know when I was twenty, I was a very strong driver, and I'm not anymore. So we change, and that's normal.
2: Yeah, I would agree. I think that we change. I mean, not just over time, which of course that that's that's a natural part of our you know personality growth and and change of personality over your lifespan. But I think also, as Grant said, kind of within any given week, depending on what's going on. And I think everything is it comes down to sort of a spectrum. Where do you fall on the introvert extrovert spectrum? and and that can change from day to day. But overall, you probably have sort of a tendency to lean more in one direction or one end of the spectrum than the other. And I think um, you know that that's probably true of all of our personality traits.
5: Brian, this is such a good question. Just listen to the conversation that that you've got everybody talking about. Um, Thanks very much for sending it in. Um, I mean, I think most people on transcontinental trips outside their own country are a combination of both types, but to varying degrees. I mean, very few are constant introverts and very few are constant extroverts. It is, as Michelle and Grant have been saying, I think just a general mix according to the mood that you're in and also the base of who you are. I'm an introvert, I have been for a long time, Um, nobody can laugh because it's true. Um, But I've learned how not to be shy because there are times where it just pays you huge dividends to be more outgoing. Um, Part of the fun of travel is the people that you meet, part of of the fun of life as a whole is the people that you meet and the the laughs you have and you learn from. Um, But actually being a selfish hermit from time to time is a really, really nice thing to do. I love traveling on my own. But equally, I really enjoy sharing a journey with somebody I care about and who is like-minded. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons why Birgit puts up with me so much because, you know, we just, we just click. And um, if you're an introvert all of the time, then you can end up missing an awful lot of things because um, you just don't see them. Um, they, they, they just pass by you or you see them, but you can't summon up the energy to explore them. Um, I mean, I find the psychology of all of this absolutely fascinating. And when Brian's talking about riding um, 600Ks in a day, I I don't often do that. Um, But I am very conscious on the days where I do do that, that I am lacking in stimulation um, as a balance to the ride. In other words, I'm becoming a little bit travel blind on those days because I've not got the other things to input to make me feel um, level and open-minded with everything.
4: Uh, but I, I, I agree with everything everyone said about being an introvert or extrovert when you're riding and all the rest of it. And a, and a good example, and I do it a lot, is if you want to get on the bike and have your own heat space and your own solo space, you just go for a ride. And sometimes you want to mix it with your mates. Uh, I've got friends that, um, you know, they, they like their own space. Uh, but then they, they, like, they like to share it at the end of the day. classic example is the last time I rode around Australia with um, six of us. Um, we all met up uh, and, and rode around Australia, and we, we're riding minimum of 600 kilometres a day for days on end, for 23 days. But we found we needed our own space sometimes. So one guy in particular, we'd been um, staying each night together he decided that no, I need my own space, and he got a uh, he rode off onto the um, the cliff tops of the um, Great Australian bike and camped out there by himself. And we caught up with him later, and you talk to each other about what you what you act what you need at the time. And I've found that um, the bike has been my solace for all, many, many, many years. It's a way of escape. It's a way of um, finding your own headspace. And I agree with everyone. what everyone else has said. You, you do mix these things up and um, you've got to be in, in the mood. Um, sometimes I'll go up to the shed and I'll put my helmet on and think about what sort of ride I want today. It'll be, you know, I'm just going for a cruise or um, I'm going to meet mates and I've got a couple of friends who are struggling a bit at the moment and, you um, uh i went for a ride last week with one of them and he said oh i won't come riding with you i'll meet you there i need a bit of time so he went off and rode um through some dirt and we caught up later on it's just the understanding of what you want out of your ride and i, I think most of us are using motorcycles that way particularly as you get older
0: Shirley, are, are you and brian would you consider you guys to have the same personality type
3: Oh, gosh, no. There's <laughs> <laughs> only space for one, one Brian in our household. <laughs> but, Jim, I don't think anyone would argue with me if I said I was an extrovert, but um, I guess I'm introverted occasionally, but they're pretty rare occasions. Yeah. Um, I don't have the same opportunity, obviously, to travel alone because I don't ride. I have um, – I have gone for other sorts of trips on my own and I'm very comfortable in my own company. But I yeah, with the motorcycle it's 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 not an option. Um, I certainly agree with Grant on the six, seven hundred Ks a day for eight days is um, extreme. You need a holiday, you need a break off the bike. Uh, we have the advantage of no matter what sort of day we have, we can debrief together at the end of the day.
5: You do, you do.
3: And I think that's um, that's something that I enjoy, you know, if I'm doing a, a solo trip for, for business, oh gosh, back in the late 15th century when I worked, um, it was always nice to, to have the opportunity to debrief with someone at the end of the day, no matter what kind of day you've had or, you know, what it's, what it's been making. But um, I think no matter what sort of person you are, you just need to make sure you look after that person at the end of the day. Um, if you're someone who likes to ride six, 700 k's a day for eight eight days, do it. But sit down and draw breath at the end and say, well, okay, maybe I need a few days break now and, and, uh, and then pick up again. Or if you're someone who needs to have lots of breaks, take those breaks. Don't let people pressure you into doing something you don't want to do or being the person you don't want to be. Well 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 obviously
0: yeah. um, like we're not qualified to to do to, to any psychological analysis or anything for Brian here, but but, are you, but you're saying that you think that's what it is, and I think Grant's saying the same thing is that uh, what Brian did was he he sort of wore himself out too many miles on the bike, too many hours on the bike without yes. stopping so, to
3: yeah. Sometimes you need to do it. the necessity will, will mean you have to. I've just been re- um, reading our diary from getting across the trans-siberian highway. And we would get up and go, wow, we've got a short route today or a long route. The long route is 770 Ks and the short route 730. <laughs> <laughs> but we had no choice. There aren't too many places in between A and B to stop. So you have to do those Ks. But on other occasions, like when we were in Mediterranean, Turkey, we'd be lucky to do 150 Ks and then we'd stop for two days and spend a day and a half at the beach and then pack up and with all determination to do two or 300 Ks the next day and find another beach, 60 Ks down the road and stop again. So if you've got the flexibility to do that, that's marvellous. But if you have the necessity to do those long Ks, you just have to knuckle down and do them.
4: But I I think Brian is learning, just learn from that experience. You did 600 Ks over so many days and it it wore you out. Don't do it again. Try something different.
3: And he does talk about wanting someone to share with at the end of the day. Yeah, And um, I think we all like that. And that's one of the things we've talked about in the past, um, particularly, Michelle, when you were travelling alone, staying in hostels
4: Find somewhere else,
3: where you're going to be mixing with a bunch of people perhaps your own age, perhaps not, but like-minded people um, that are happy to have a, a drink with a, a stranger at night and, uh, and share a meal and a, a few stories, whereas if you're staying in a, you know, four-star hotel, heaven forbid... Um, you're not going to meet someone there that you can chat with. And sometimes people travelling on their own are that introvert that they don't want to go into a bar or a cafe and start chatting to a stranger, whereas if you're in a hostel, you're virtually compelled to chat with that stranger and that can be the debrief and the friendship that you need at the end of the day.
4: Who was the writer who um, uh, found himself sitting in a cafe writing in his, his diary? Bill Bryson. Bill Bryson, that's right.
3: Uh, he yeah. said he felt he was over-researching when he was reading back his notes and it said, went to cafe and made notes for book. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
5: that's lovely. Shirley, I'm so glad that you said this about four-star hotels because I stay in them all of the time. And, do you know, when I go down to the bar and I'm talking to people and, and people say to me, so how much are you then? And I'm thinking, what? but listen, but this i mean brian i i've got real respect for you because you went out you stretched yourself you did something completely different out of your your normal travel your riding zone and at the end of it you've asked some questions of yourself and you thought yeah Let's, let's see what other people think about this. Maybe I'm, I'm not the only one that's having this and other people can learn from, from what I've just stretched myself to do. I think that's fantastic. But it did make me have um, an additional question, and that is, are we more likely when we're in our own countries or region to be less inclined to talk to other people when we're riding? As in, are we less inclined to stop and talk to strangers when we're in our own environments?
3: Well, um, I can speak for Brian on this and right, I will yeah. relate a very funny story <laughs> oh, no, no, no. from um, Elders' son. We were on holidays together and we were at um, Alice Springs and Stephen turned around and said to me, do you notice Dad just talks to complete strangers all the time?
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
3: and I had actually noticed that as his personality trait. And about six months later, we were in South America and I sent Stephen a message saying, Your father is still speaking to total strangers, but now he doesn't speak their language. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what's wrong with that?
1: (laughs) He's trying. That's what
0: counts. Sign language. The thing is, you know, when I'm listening to everyone describe themselves, really, it, it sounds to me like, I'll just throw this out there and see what you guys think. It, it sounds to me it's like it's a bunch of extroverts who have introverted moments is what it is. Because if you think about an introvert, think about an introvert, you know, can they be an extrovert? Can you cross over? Can you truly cross over? Or or is that sort of the um, the personality traits of an extrovert, somebody who is already comfortable being out there, but also can spend some time by themselves.
4: I I take uh, Michelle's example and uh, I've experienced this too. You can train that out of people. You know, if Mm -hmm. you're an introvert and you have to get up and speak in front of a thousand people, you you, you simply, you've got to get over it and move on. And you do, and and you sort of train yourself.
2: What do you think, Michelle? Yeah, I would agree. And I, I had the, uh, the great fortune, sometimes occasionally misfortune of working with hundreds of different employees over the years, excuse me. And I, I think I've seen a lot of people that are naturally introverts who are very skilled, maybe say at computer data entry, et cetera, um, come into say a front desk, uh, clerk job where they have to answer the phone and work one-on-one with people coming up to them all day long. And they're so out of their element and so uncomfortable at first, but over time, they, they learned to work with that. They learned to compensate. And that's kind of how I feel about myself, that I was a bookworm. I was a number cruncher who literally worked in a basement accounting office in the back room. And then because of a staff shortage, took a, a summer position and agreed to, to cover a hotel manager position for a summer because an employee left. And 20 years later, I was still managing hotels and I had just learned to work around that. So yeah. it, it yeah. can happen. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it, that just, it's a long process. And yes, we have different days where we're one end of the spectrum versus the other. And then over the long haul, we can change where we're at on that spectrum, I think, too. It,
0: it sounds like it being introverted is something that needs to be cured. And, and I think if you were to talk to a, a real introvert, often they don't want to be cured. <laughs> they don't want to yeah. be an extrovert. That's yeah. that's just not them, right? They're, they're comfortable. Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, it, it's it's interesting. I spotted some research um, about travel and saying that you should understand your personality type and use that to figure out where you want to go, what you want to do for travel. And, and if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. I mean, if you are an extroverted person, maybe you do want to go places where you're going to meet people, um, you know, uh, rub shoulders, so to speak, or, or put yourself in situations mm-hmm. where you will end up talking with people. But maybe if you're introverted, you don't, maybe, maybe that's not what you're after. maybe that's when I hear Cause I hear some people say they're more, um, nature oriented. They like camping mm-hmm. and, and being, which is kind of where I lie. Um, they like being in the outdoors much more than they like going into a, a city. Maybe that it shows, you know, the, the trait of a, an introverted traveler over an extroverted traveler.
4: Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah, okay. You go into a big city. Most big cities are all the same. There's high-rise buildings and and streets, paved streets. And a few of them have got their own little iconic things. Yeah, like the Eiffel Tower. Like the Eiffel Tower, just, yeah. just little thing like that. But uh, yeah, I much prefer the countryside. And but I don't know whether that actually uh, tells you what sort of personality you are. sure. I suspect,
1: about. I suspect introverts don't go on cruise ships.
3: Oh, gosh, no. Sensible people don't
5: either. This is true. I don't know. I don't know if you're right about that. Um, I've been on two cruise ships. Um, The first one was when we um, won the big trip and we were going from South Africa to South America because it was the cheapest way to get across. Um, And the second time was with my mother. And I noticed an awful lot of people who were just being themselves and hardly talking to anybody else they didn't mind they they were obviously enjoying being around other people but they were their own little um, bubble worlds in amongst the chaos
3: so i guess you can be on your own without being on your own i guess yeah is right. that
5: situation yeah yeah
0: Interesting. In Brian, Brian, Brian's question, I'll just go back to that. He says, this got me thinking deeper. Could your choice yeah. of what is an ideal adventure be related to you being an introvert or an extrovert or having the type A or B personality?
4: I think that's what we were talking about. You know, we were saying that, that you, you, know, you sort of develop where you want to go and what you want to do because of who you are.
3: Yeah, Without actually thinking about who you are. Yeah. I, I, I don't think the average person overthinks what sort of personality they are. It's just their nature will say to them, well, I want to do this sort of trip. And without I – don't, I don't know that I'm explaining that very well. But um, I would do a certain sort of trip because of my personality and – other people will do a different sort of trip because of their personality. But we did that ourselves, sure. Yeah, without analysing.
4: I I said, oh, look, I really want to ride these roads over here. And she said, well, look at these great sights we can see. and Look what we can do here. And we would work out together what we wanted to do. As
3: Grant said about the twisty roads and the museums, (laughs) life is good. When there is a museum at the end of the twisty road. Exactly.
4: <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> well, well, and and I guess like Brian said, you try something, you find it doesn't work. And maybe that's because that isn't your personality type. You know, maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe for Brian who wrote this, Brian Gross, maybe his personality type is not the type that wants to ride by himself. Maybe the idea of it seems romantic, you know, on the cover of a magazine, but when you actually get out there and do it, you realize that, you know, it's just not my style. Yep.
2: Yeah. yeah. And that style, I think, changes over time, too. For me, I can have, you know, maybe a week or a couple of weeks of traveling solo. And then I just get to the point that, all right, I've had enough helmet time. I better talk to another human being. I better go to a hostel or <laughs> meet up yeah, with yeah, a friend or message somebody or something. Because And in, in my threshold is much lower than that. It's probably four or five days where I, I just, I need to have a conversation. And I, you know, other than just the, you know, chatting with a waitress or chatting with somebody at a table next to you or whatever, actually seeing someone that I know or doing a video call, something like that. And so, yeah, I, th- I think that, you know, can be different at different stages of your life and where you're yeah. at.
4: But Michelle, did you find it the other way around when you were on that trip to Pakistan, when you were with a group the whole time? Did you need you have to find some space?
2: You know, I, I was really nervous about that because I had never traveled as a group and granted it wasn't that big of a group. There were nine women total and then, um, we had two or three other support bikes with us, um, and the guide. We, because, and again, that goes back to what I said kind of at the beginning, I don't have comms in my helmet and I thought about it for a long time. I've tried comms, um, you know, having the ability to chat with other riders, especially if you're traveling in a city. that is something that I think is super important because when you're, you know, coming up to an intersection or a turn or anything like that, it's good to communicate and say, hey, we went around the corner. We're just pulled over to the right. You'll catch up with us in a second, you know, when you're traveling as a group. But I prefer not to have that kind of chatter in my helmet and that I don't listen to music, anything. I, so when we were in Pakistan, we would ride for, you know, 10 to 12 hours a day. And I was getting enough alone time in my helmet yeah. that it, it was good. And if I wanted to, at the end of the day, I could go to the social, you know, area in the hotel or in the campground and hang out with everybody. And if I didn't want to, I could go to my tent and I could, yeah. you know, I could choose what I wanted. And I, I like had, I liked having those options. Yeah. What do
0: you What do you think about Michelle when you're riding along?
2: I don't know.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you just wasted uh, that it, time? You didn't get anything done. <laughs>
2: no, I'm uh, honestly, I'm just, uh, I'm a human sponge. I'm sitting here. I'm uh, what What really drives me, I think, more than my introvert, extrovert, type A, type B, la la. la what really drives me and how I travel is one big personality trait of mine and that's curiosity. Mm, I, I really feel like that's what takes me out into the world. And that's what, you know, keeps me traveling. And when I come home from a trip, I have friends and family that don't even ask sometimes about my trip. And I remember coming back from two years on the road and and thinking, oh, you know, they're gonna ask. They're gonna wanna know. And and the people just didn't ask. And I think that really showed the difference between, you know, a different personality trait, which is curious people and people that are maybe content with what they know and what they experience and what their life as it is. And and so that probably drives me out into the world. And when I'm in my helmet, I'm literally looking at the color in that flower, the shape of that mountain, look at the erosion, what crops are they planting? What's that smell? Is that You know, is that almond trees in bloom? Is that eucalyptus trees? What, what is that? Where am I? What season? What language? Reading road signs. I am just a human sponge when I ride. So that's different for me.
0: I guess some of those people who are not asking uh, questions, that could be cultural too.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
5: Sorry, Sam, what were you saying? I was just saying that Michelle's um, just described exactly how um, what goes on inside my helmet when I'm I'm riding too, and for a long time, Birgit and I didn't have comms, and you know we we would lose each other from time to time, but not often, and um, that was fine, but um, it was the city thing, and it was also very occasionally that um, have you seen this view or there's a view coming up, slow down, um, or oh, um, a coffee would be great right now. It was those little things, and Birgit and I risked getting um, intercoms, and we realized that actually we we weren't the chatty types anyway. So we weren't talking loads. We were just key pointing, and that was absolutely fine. We had plenty of time um, to ourselves inside our helmets. And when we were on the big trip, Birgit didn't, um, well, we didn't have intercoms. And Birgit said she probably wouldn't have survived the whole trip if we had had.
0: Now, hang on a 2nd I'm reading a lot into this. I like, know, but but so so really, Sam, was it was it just Birgit that wasn't into talking nonstop, or, and was the the comment about her not surviving because you would have talked nonstop?
5: No, it was very tongue-in-cheek, Jim, you know me.
3: (laughs) Well, I have to say, our first communication system, um, Brian could actually turn me off. Uh, It did happen. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd be chatting away and there'd be no reaction and I would discover that he had indeed turned me off and I was speaking to myself. (laughs) That's interesting. Doesn't
0: Grant do the same thing? We did exactly the same thing. We started off,
1: Susan's first experience, she'd never been on a motorcycle before and she had comms right from the very beginning, so she was used to it. But in those days, I had a switch to turn it off. And every once in a while, it would get turned off by accident, of course. <laughs> um, I would for, get in so us, much the, trouble. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, she, she knows I did that. And sometimes I would just plain completely just tune it out. Um, but for us, the comms has always been occasional, you know, question about this. and When should we stop for lunch and where should we go and stuff like that? Real conversations and conversations. To be honest, it's too hard. I don't care how good your comms are. There's enough wind noise and enough going on, et cetera, that you really can't concentrate on what you're talking about, at least as the rider I can. Susan sitting on the back can chatter away all day long if necessary. But um, but we don't tend to do that. Mostly just, you know, oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. Or, Time for a pee break. That kind of stuff.
5: Um, you know, it's funny. You. It does this to me when we're out walking. We were out walking the other day and I was chatting away and uh, said, hey, look look, what's down there. Let's go and have a look. So down is that little alleyway. It's only about 10 or 15 feet. And I'm there looking through the railings and talking away saying, God, it's a big, big space down here. What is interesting? I had no idea this was down here. Talking away for two or three minutes. I turned around. Birgit carried on walking. She was about 150 yards up the road. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
4: Sure, Cheryl's, yeah, yep. Cheryl, Cheryl's done that. Chatter, 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 talking to a com- complete stranger and I've wandered off somewhere. But I, I don't use comms talking to other riders. I just no. refuse or answer phones. Don't do that. But I need to talk to Cheryl when we travel, really. That's it. Usually yeah. just
3: say, sit still, stop wriggling around. We're about to go through some really tricky roads. Um, Shut
4: up and hang on. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you said that too, eh, Brian? <laughs> <laughs> I, learned from, I learned it from you. Two are twins. And I'm, I'm happy yeah.
2: that you both lived to tell about it.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, usually
1: because in, those, in the conditions that we were in, when we had to say those sort of things. Yes. The staff side said, yeah, that was a good idea to tell me to shut up."
2: <laughs> yeah, fair
1: enough. You're busy. That's okay.
3: But at other times, Brian does have the bruises on his kidneys to to show.
4: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's a We went out for a nice little trundle on the 750 Honda the other day, Shirley. You really
3: enjoyed that? No mm, problem. It wasn't so easy coming home with the two litres of milk, but… The- <laughs> <laughs>
0: I, I'm intrigued by, um, Michelle, what you said and, and Brian said as well about um, the personality types change. I think Grant said it as well, about the personality type changing. What what, what ways do you do you change as you age, What do you think?
1: I think you get more relaxed, less driven. Yeah. Um, you, you understand people a lot better as you get older because you've had enough experiences, good and bad. Um, and you learn that telling people what to do doesn't actually work that well because they don't tend to listen um, yeah you just you learn to be more amiable to be more um, working with as opposed to telling um, that's yeah. that's the main thing I've learned
2: yeah i I think those are all really true, and I think for me too, I've become a little more confident in. Just yeah. and may, some of that comes with experience of traveling, not just with age, but all of those years, whatever that equates to. I feel more confident in my ability to just kind of go with the flow and figure things out. And if someone wants to do something that I don't want to do, um, as long as it's not at the expense of them being able to do what they want to do, I'm comfortable saying, hey, I'm going to go off and do my own thing. And, um, I'm, I'm comfortable in my own skin saying, you know, what it is that I'd like to do or throwing a suggestion out there where maybe I, I wasn't before and I would, you know, go with a group or go do something that, you know, I maybe didn't enjoy as much as what I wanted to do on my own. So now I'll I'll speak up and maybe, um, consider doing my own thing and rejoining the group and tailoring my experience to be. a a little more what I want it to be.
5: Nice. I like that because one of the things that I hear so often from people who travel together Um, especially if they don't know each other very well is that they're having to make too many compromises all of the time and I think the longer those people travel together if they do um, get to the longer stage the more they realise that actually they do need to have the arrangement within the relationship to go off and do their own thing or adapt and to do things together that maybe just not tick um, all of their own boxes but it is that flexibility isn't it and that's, that's really important people who just end up splitting up so often seems to me, that they've batted heads and they're not prepared to to bend and flex and to say, yeah, today, yeah, I'm going to go off and do that. Yeah. With Travelling
3: travel. with people, be they your spouse, partner, friend, stranger, can be really difficult, mm-hmm. and it can be really brilliant. And you just have to be flexible to make sure that, you know, you get through those niggly little bits and come out the other end of it still friends or still buried. But, yeah, it just – it has to be flexible, whether it be a, you know, a trip to the shops or a six-month trip across the country, that you have to be flexible.
0: It is life, isn't it? I mean, that, that's yeah. life. We, we There's so many things. Everything, yeah. really, we have to be flexible and we have to make compromises if you want to work with somebody or travel with somebody in particular. Um, that, and we've talked about that before about that being a compromise, but I think the mistake would be is not to understand that before you go on a trip, you know, you have this thing in your mind that your trip is going to be exactly as you see it without taking into consideration those that you're traveling with. Um, And that can be difficult with a group. Like you were saying, Brian, like even, uh, with your, your friend there who decides to go off and camp by himself, that's, that's doing it on the run, but you, you certainly have to deal with it.
4: Yeah. But I think everyone has to be mature enough to understand that. And I think uh, the more yeah. you travel, and I, I disagree with you a bit there, Jim. I think um, uh, when you start a trip, it's a bit of an organic thing. You might have this ideal of doing that and it doesn't quite work for you. So you change as you go along and you and that's how you develop your, your travel. We did mm-hmm. that for sure between but,
3: us. And if someone wants to do something on their own, that's it, it's not a slight against yeah. you. It's not a criticism of you or what you want to do. It's just they want to do something different. And if we were all the same, what a boring old world it would be.
5: Yeah. So- there's, there's, there's an English um, overlander called Ted Healy, and I was reading something he wrote the other day, and um, he was traveling down through Africa, and he'd set off with a mate And um, there was sort of confidence boosting each other, and then they met various other people along the way, and it it ended up to be a a nice little group, and everybody was enjoying each other's company and so on. And then one day, Ted suddenly realized, but hang on a minute, I'm not experiencing a lot of the things that I want to experience because I'm with a group. And so... Um, One morning, he decided that he was just going to let the rest of the guys carry on on their own. And I I get from the tone of it, um, everybody else was just happy to do that. And Ted spent the next period of time traveling all on his own until he was ready to, to link up with somebody else. And then he traveled with somebody with a very loose sort of arrangement, as in, oh, let's ride for a few days together. And then the other guy would say, oh, we're going to go down that way today. And Ted say, oh, you know, I'll meet you in such and such town along the way. And that sort of thing. And it, it just slotted really well for them. And what you were mm. saying just now, Brian, about it being a learning curve and you adapt along the way, that's how it is. That's travel, isn't it? And that's one of the beauties mm. of motorcycle travel. We can do that. We've got the ability to just head off on our own.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We've seen that with with, a couple of guys plan a big trip and they're going to do this thing and they're going to ride together and they're sharing equipment and sharing camping gear to lighten the load and all that kind of stuff. I strongly recommend against that. You should each be self-sufficient and you should discuss at the beginning of it that, you know, it's okay if you or I want to go off and ride by myself for a while and I'll meet you in another town down the road. I think everybody needs to understand that. And as we've been talking about, you need to be okay with that, with everybody. It's not because I hate you. It's because I need some me time. Whether mm-hmm. it was you or anybody else, it doesn't matter. I need some me time or I just don't want to do what you want to do and it's okay. I think that's needs to be talked about right up front. Yeah.
0: So I guess what we're telling Brian Gros here who who wrote this is really what, what, what Brian said is that uh, you tried something that didn't work and now you know, like, sort of don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. You know that didn't work. Now you're going to have to make adjustments for your next time, whether it's like, I think everybody said this surely as well, about too much distance, too much pressure on covering distance, not enough time just sitting and and kicking back. I mean, that's sort of the gist of it, isn't it?
4: Yeah, I think so.
1: Can I sum that up, Jim? Go ahead. Well, shit, that didn't work.
4: (laughs) 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 Yep, T-shirt. Oh, I can't
3: That's wait to see the cover
0: notes for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll take a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk some more about the psychology of riding from all of us who are so well versed in psychology. So, um, We'll thank freshtracks.co.uk. Fresh Tracks has been around since the 90s and they work with companies uh, or groups to inspire, motivate, challenge and build communication skills through team building exercises. That's freshtracks.co.uk. Um, they work with companies like uh, Comic Relief, Yahoo, Mars, Pfizer, some big companies like that. If you're interested in, in doing something with your team, I would look them up and uh, have a look at what they do at freshtracks.co.uk. Thank you, Freshtracks. Okay, so part 2 here is a message from Kevin Weber. First of all, thanks uh, Kevin and thanks Br- to Brian Gross for for these messages. Uh, they they're great um, they're great questions. So Kevin writes Post Trip Blues is the subject. And he says, "I don't recall if you've talked about uh, depression setting in after longer trips, hell even a shorter trip." He says, "I've been fortunate enough to take a few multi-week and month trips. I know a few people who have as well." They all seem to have depression set in once they return. And he goes on to say, I wonder if any of the guests you've spoken to have mentioned this or anyone with RAW has experienced depression after a trip. A person leaves and experiences many things and sights and they come home and cannot relate with old friends and family. Now, I know we've talked about this on Adventure Rider Radio um, many times. It's come up in different conversations, maybe not specifically, but it's come up uh, a lot of people coming back and and feeling depressed when they come back and not being able to relate to friends and family. And I I think you guys have even joked about, I think Shirley, you said, you said before that, what was it? Do you remember what you said about, um, about coming back and trying to tell people about your trip?
3: Well, you've just got to understand that they really don't care and you will bore them to tears very, very quickly. And, and you really have to think about, you know, when something comes up in conversation, not to say when we were in, dot, 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 dot because people's eyes will start to glaze over mm. and I, I think it's sort of an extension of what Michelle was saying earlier that some people, some people are interested in what you've done but it's up to a point and other people are just <laughs> glad to have you home and that's it. Well,
0: it's kind of like your experience, isn't it? I mean, you, you, it may be a motorcycle adventure and you may be conquering something or achieving something or figuring something out, but to somebody else is just in a uh, vacation you went on and you know, it's like telling them you went and sat on the beach, that sort of thing. So, I mean, it, it could be, maybe they look at it as, as you know, just a family holiday. You're, you're trying to show me a slideshow. Yeah. And,
3: and, and the other thing is while you've been away for 12 months, 18 months, six months, two months, their lives have just gone on like they would every time they would go to work, they'd, you know, they'd have family crises, they'd have fun, they'd go to parties. Whereas you've done things that are completely outside of your comfort zone and you can come back so enthusiastic and so wanting to share these things, but everyone else, they're not that interested, I guess, is, is, uh, is one way of looking at it because their lives have just gone on and they're the same people. I think sometimes we expect people to have changed while we've been away and they won't. They're the same people that we left and that's why we love them and that's why we're glad to be back with them.
5: You know, when when people when you set out on a big trip, um, we are who we are and we're in the same mental time zone or experience zone as as our, as many of our family and significant number of our friends and so on. And when we head out, they stay in the lives they've chosen and they're on their own form of intake overload from that lifestyle And although some um, actually live on autopilot, don't they? Not paying much attention to where they are. Um, And I'm sure we all have friends like that. And if that's their bag, no worries. Humans are different. I mean, I do always hope that something will spark them to explore more. But when a long-distance traveler um, goes out, their intake overload is completely different. There is no comparison. Even food shopping is different, let alone the constant changes of types of accommodation and culture and landscapes and challenges. And overlanders come back different. Um, I mean, when they set out, they're a certain shape, let's say a square peg that fits into the square shape of how life has to be when they're living in one place. They've got so many other parts of a jigsaw puzzle to fit into, and square makes sense. Um, Not square in an insulting way, just a logical way. And when they come back, well, a lot of those edges have been worn off by adventure and mishaps and knowledge and fall-offs and all the rest of it. And that means that they no longer fit so logically into the shape of life at home. But what makes that worse is because um, of all that a person learns and experiences when, they, when they're when they traveling, they grow. And sometimes they grow too big to actually fit into anything like the old shape that they once fit into. And that really starts a, a feeling of un, unease when they get back. Um they don't know who they are and how to fit in anymore. And that can turn into depression for some. I mean, I don't get depressed. Of course I miss the road. Um, I don't expect not to. But for me, it's it's more like fascination for what's going to happen next when I get home. And I guess I tend to get um, quite analytical in a way. I'm kind of fascinated by all the ways that I have changed and suddenly finding myself back at home starts to highlight those. And because I'm thinking about it and I'm aware of it and I'm analysing those things, I mean, I actually come across some things that I've learned on the road that perhaps I don't like, so I just stop doing those. And some changes simply aren't important enough to keep going with them. So I think by starting to think about who you are once you're back and how you compare to the old you, um, that actually starts to help you. And when you're living in a, a a close society, unless you want to be a total renegade, then just ignore those changes. However, focus on the things that you'd like to keep. And I think it's also a case of using the knowledge to enhance the things that you did learn on the trip, such as writing, photography, um, choosing foods, the way you speak to people, ambitions, and so on. And I think one of the other things that helps me in particular is that I already start planning the next trip. And that might be years away, but it absolutely helps keep me being positive because I'm using the training and the knowledge that I've got over the last years of travel um, while they're still sharp in my mind. And that means that I've actually using those skills in such a way that's going to make future life even better still than than it could be and of course the next trip could just be a, a weekend away or several months i accept also that if i can't adapt back into my own society then it's up to me to change my circumstances and that might be a job group of friends find new but still keep connected with the old and some people that i talk to find that the job that they once did with enthusiasm is now stifling And the management isn't prepared to understand that they have a person that they used to know well as a character who has a whole new set of skills that could be put to advantage um, for the company. And if that's the case, if if the people that you're going to be working with don't understand that you've got something new to contribute and you're failing to explain those things, then perhaps it is just, well, actually, I've grown. I'm a different person now. I need to be looking for somewhere else to be me somewhere else that can take advantage of all all of the different things. Does that make sense? Very well said. Yeah. Yeah.
4: I agree.
2: Yeah.
4: I I, I, I reckon um, after our first trip, I suffered a little bit of that. We came back and one of the first things, my my mates um, wanted to go for a ride and we were meeting up at a certain location. And I was a bit late, but I knew where they were going. And I got to the start point and everyone had gone and, and I felt, you know, I really just don't want to go for a ride with them at the moment. So I just uh, had my little thermos of tea with me and I disappeared up into the, the bush and found a log, sat down, had a cup of tea and had a good think about where I'd been, what I'd done. Call it depression, call it, I don't know, melancholy moment or whatever you, you want, but that that's something that um, I felt. And, and going back to work after a trip, I found really hard because – you're right, you do grow, you, you di- you're a different person, and it does have a label, it's called emotional intelligence. When you've experienced all the things that you experience on the road, you are different, you know? You, 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 you're not in your little bubble of um, your town, your city, your state, your country, you, you see the world in a different light. There's no doubt about that. And uh, I looked at things which which people were uh, whinging and complaining about, and I'm thinking first world problem. you got no Mm -hmm. idea how difficult it is for people in in other parts of the world. And you come back with a different perspective. So, yeah, you are different.
0: Brian, changed in what ways? What what changes? That was one example you just gave there. But when you're saying first world problems, do you have some other examples?
4: Oh, oh, a simple thing like traffic congestion. Uh, You know, I would ride 40 minutes. Through peak hour traffic to get to work, crossing six lanes of traffic and all that sort of stuff, and um, you, you have to be a little bit aggressive sometimes. But then after riding through Delhi, it was it was a doddle. It was easy. It was nothing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. You know what I mean? It's a simple example, but um, in the office setting, you know, people would be talking about uh, something. Right. I won't go into it because I shouldn't. But. Um, you know what I mean uh, that, that sort of thing is um, I reckon where you do grow on a trap on a, on, a, on a big trip and I'm sure Michelle and, and and Sam and Grant you've all done the same thing yeah
2: yeah I, I definitely can relate to that I think some of the things that changed for me were feeling um, much different about the things that I surrounded myself with and I wanted to have things that really were important to me that, or that I felt. Um, like I could have a good conscience about. I was less materialistic. Um, I was concerned about not wasting as much. And that that was just something that had evolved from traveling and living off of a motorcycle for two years, as opposed to having a three-bedroom house with a library and an office and a guest room and all of that, to just really thinking and living small. And just feeling when I got home, like everything was so excessive. Everything was... You know, pe- the the priorities that people had in their lives, the way that they saw things were so dramatic and so over-exaggerated and nothing felt like it was life or death to me. Like some people tended to seem to make things feel like, um, and I I jokingly referred to coming home and I might've stolen this from somebody somewhere on the internet because I've seen a lot of discussions about um, depression and, and readjustment and coming home and what that's like. But I remember somewhere picking up the term and, and referring to it as re-entry, like an astronaut coming back from space. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I, I think that's really fitting because I remember, um, you know, I, I blogged during my whole trip. I posted a lot of photos and a lot of stories. But after three years of blogging in my trip or in my travels, The most popular blog that I post that I ever made in three years of blogging was one that I wrote about six months after I got home. And it was specifically talking about what it was like to come home, what my emotions Mm. were like, what the transition was like. Um, And I've shared that post with a lot of people since then, because I think it still speaks to how I felt. And I I don't think sitting here today, I can even do justice to what I was feeling like at that time. You're in it and you're feeling it, you're living it. But then you kind of grow past that and heal from that and whatever. But I remember, you know, coming home and being happy to see everybody. But at the same time, I was really overwhelmed by talking or having a conversation with any more than like two people. I Mm. couldn't focus on conversations. I was bored by what used to be my normal life and what everybody else still saw as normal life. Um, I saw the world really differently than what I think my friends and family saw it. Uh, as And I, I don't mean that to sound sanctimonious, it, it's just that I really saw things differently. And I don't know if anybody's ever seen the movie The Matrix, I've made this kind of comparison before, but The Matrix is where this guy lives in this virtual world and he wakes up, he comes out of The Matrix. And that very much feels that way when I left everything. I sold my house, put belongings away in storage, left a job and lived off of the motorcycle for two years and coming home, I very much felt like a different person and I I could go back, but I wasn't the same person anymore. So I needed to learn how to not expect myself to feel the same way that I used to feel because I wasn't capable of that anymore. And I didn't have as much in common with certain things or likes or interests or people as I did before. Um, and I had changed. So my view of the old parts of my life had changed. And while I sometimes thought people's personalities were different now that I came back, I later realized it was my perspective that had changed and I needed to let go of that expectation and just enjoy them as they were and learn a new way to appreciate that. Uh, put. Yeah. Thank you. I think for me, the key was just to really remind myself to be patient with myself. I don't, I don't know that I really saw it as depression at the time, but I think in hindsight, yeah, that that certainly was I think a form of depression that I was going through. Um, mm-hmm. And as Sam said too, one of the big positives for me that I kind of kept looking forward to, or I, I kept, I, I remember in the blog post I talk about seeds of happiness, and I I wanted to plant seeds of my ha- uh, seeds of happiness for myself somewhere down the road. So whether that was a trip, or working on a book, or you know, whatever it was, buying a different motorcycle, whatever it was, I needed to have things to look forward to, to kind of get myself through that transition period, because that transition can really be a struggle for for a lot of people.
5: Feeling sad when you get back from a big trip, well, it's natural, isn't it? I mean, we're human yeah. beings. So we need a moment of grief when something dramatically changes. It's a, it's a, a natural, normal human thing to do. But valuing ourselves for the, who the new us is and putting um, those skills into action in some form or another is great fun. I was talking to a guy not so long back, funnily enough, about this very subject. And he said one of the things that he did when he got back, he was he was thinking about the experiences that he had And he ended up um, working part-time on a voluntary basis with a charity um, that was providing water aid to some very backwards um, parts of of some countries in Africa because he'd travelled through those and he'd seen how far people were having to carry dirty water on their heads just to cook and wash and everything else within their their villages. And he said, the technology is there for this not to be necessary. So he got involved with this charity and, and yeah, he used some of the stuff that he had learned along the way. And I talked to a, another guy and he said, um, he had a friend who was a school teacher and that school teacher just said, you know, I would be blown away if you'd come in and do a few talks to my kids. And so he started doing that, um, giving little talks to, to to kids. And these were primary school kids, um, you know, sort of seven, eight, nine years old. And he said it was fascinating to share some of the stories of the things that he had been involved with and learned from with these young, hundred, hungry minds. And what better way to, to be really positive about all of the, the things that you've learned and the, the new you,
0: So Sam, the the depression then, is the depression possibly, um, the feeling of coming home with this, with this, uh, new change in you and not embracing it? Like, like is the depression of where you're sitting there and you don't know what to do with the new you, the new knowledge that you have, the new feelings that you have, the way you see the world now and not putting that into action because Michelle had mentioned something there about planting seeds in the future. And you talked about planting or about uh, planning your next trip. We hear that a Mm -hmm. lot with people. Is that what the depression is? The inaction on what you have?
5: I don't know. My first response is that all human beings are different. And therefore, there are going to be some people just because of who they are, the way their gene pool is, whatever. Um are going to struggle with this side of things much more than many other people could be. But I think that there is a technique to coming back from a big trip. And that is to keep looking for the positives of that and to use those positives um, to enhance future life. And that stops it being a negative experience coming back. It actually turns it into something that's incredibly valuable.
0: Grant, when when yes. you, when we talk about de- depression and we talk about coming back, having the depression and having it fade away, when the depression fades away, in in your opinion, is it you sort of turning back into your old self, like sort of like losing that that all that stuff that you thought had changed about you, and you sort of assimilating to the old you, or, or what is it, or is it with you dealing or are you understanding your new position?
1: I think it's a combination. I think you sort of. travel is such an adventure it's exciting it's immersive it's highly stimulating and home is a letdown of course it's it's not the same level of stimulation all the time it's it's actually kind of boring really and you kind of get used to that after a while but you can also adjust how you how you live your life do things different don't sit and watch television all evening find something else to do um it's up to you to fill your time in a way that is more positive for you and works for you in a way that isn't boring and um, depressing. You've got to work past that. And I think that that's really difficult to do. And I wish I could say, do this and you'll be fine. But I don't think you can. Um, but something I wanted to point out that's really important is a lot of people before they go away in a trip, like. Susan's mother, when we left, she said, I don't expect to see you alive again. Now, that's a guilt trip. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. And we've heard other times uh, people say, well, how are you going to get a job when you come back? Susan's mother was also worried, if you survive, will you ever be able to get another job? But I can tell you that I have a multitude of stories of people who have gone away on a big trip, come back, and... Absolutely not gone back to their old job because as Sam was talking about, it's they've they've grown past that. They know much more than that. They're much more valuable than, than than they were. And they find a new and amazing job that allows them to express and use the skills that they've gained. Um, think about the international skills and the communication skills. And understanding of other cultures and how to deal with a problem, how to deal with bureaucracies that don't want to let you do what you want to do. And how do you get around that? You've learned a huge number of things. And I know a number of people who've come back to new and amazing and much better paying and much more fulfilling jobs after a trip like that. I know once upon a time we used to think, well, you go away on a big trip and you come back and you try and hide that in your resume. You make sure there's no dates in your resume, just you did this and you did this and this this. But now things have changed and you actually highlight that you've done these amazing trips or what just one trip or whatever. And what did you learn? That makes you so much more valuable to the the new economy where people are much more international, much more flexible and Things have changed from you go to the factory and you work for 60 years and die. It's it's a totally different world. And those skills that
5: you learned on a trip are now valuable. That's this comes you. down to, to what I was talking about analysis. Um, because you're sitting in your, uh, in your home environment and you're thinking about things like what do I know now that I didn't know before that could be an advantage to somebody? And you're quite right, um, Grant. We used to hide those sorts of things. You know, you'd, you'd feel a bit feel a bit bad about, you know, cheapest. I was away for three years and yeah. they're going to think I'm a perpetual bum now and I'll, I'll never yep. be able to be yeah, hold down absolutely. a proper job again and yes. all of this sort of stuff. So it's up to Definitely. you to pick out all of the things that are relevant to the job that you're thinking about doing um, and and when you go into your interview or when you're filling in your CV, all of those sorts of things, put down these new skills because they are skills. You know, there's a there's an old cliched saying: the university of life. Damn it, that's what you're on when you're on a big trip. Oh yeah, in, an
1: immersive, high-intensity course. So it's a big difference, yeah.
5: Michelle,
0: wonder w- Would you would you say or would you agree with then that um, part of getting over this depression? is making a change in, in your life. Like sort of, like I said, coming back with what you've, the changes that you have, and then actually acting on it, making a change, doing something to sort of, I, I guess, uh, I don't want to say commemorate, but I mean, to sort of take you in the direction that you're already, you're already heading in rather than just plunking back into your old life and saying, okay, I give up and push one, pull two sort of thing.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, it's, it's hard to say. I I think It depends on the person. It depends on the circumstance. I'm going to be the anomaly here and say that when I came back from two years on the road, the last thing that I wanted to do was go back into a hotel executive job. And that's exactly what I did when I got home. So because it was how I could pay the bills. I mean, I had a 20 year career. In fact, I had a job invitation waiting for me uh, two months after I left home. And they sat and waited for me for two years to come back. Um, so I was, I was very lucky and I, I felt like I didn't want to be disrespectful of that opportunity. So I went and worked for that company for a couple of years and, and really saw it. I think mentally the way that I got through that, it wasn't necessarily my first choice, but I saw that as a way to be a stepping stone to the next life. I could see when I came back from the trip that I wanted to do something different. My, my long-term dream would be like a motorcycle camp, campground, Um, you know, something of that nature. And I wanted to transition to cabins or something. And so I took a job um, at a company back in South Dakota and doing what I did before. And it was hard to put the yoke back on, so to speak. It was really hard to get back into routine and into meetings and planning and all of that. And, And I didn't feel like I was losing some of the things that I acquired on the trip, but I had to learn to work with them in a different way and and to preserve some of that. And I used coming back into that job as a stepping stone into the next thing. And so now I have my own property and the dream is to continue growing that into like a moto event venue somewhere down the road. And so I'm, I'm making steps in that direction and that all came from taking that trip.
0: That's quite a description, putting the yoke back on. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that says a lot right there. So the dream now is to have like hundreds of these all across the United States and into Australia?
2: Hundreds. <laughs> I was thinking two, three, <laughs> maybe one. I'm not even at moto camp yet, but okay. I'm working on it. I just didn't know so, how yeah.
0: ambitious you were with, with, this, with this plan.
2: <laughs> I want to go play too. That That's really the dream is that I want to balance having making a living doing what I love with having the time to enjoy that.
0: I mean, doesn't everybody come back with this? Everyone comes back from a trip, no matter how long it seems, that they've really fallen in love with traveling by motorcycle and they want to make a living Doing what they love to do, which can be great, but it also can be you know a problem as well. As I, I think anyone yeah. who's ever tried to do that before can find that sometimes you don't end up you know doing what you what you love to do. And I'll just give you a quick example. Many years ago, when I was in my early twenties, we started a publishing company, and I thought my dream because I knew nothing. I was you know just a, a stupid young kid starting this this ridiculous thing that was so big, but. My dream or my my picture of the dream was completely different. When we finally established this thing, I found myself having to wear a suit and go and meet advertising. It wasn't what I wanted. It wasn't at all what I wanted. So that's sort of the danger of going after, you know, what you love to do and turning it into your vocation.
2: Yeah. And I mean, they call it work for a reason. It's not, <laughs> it, it is what it is. Yeah. It's a job, it's work, but it pays the bills. And hopefully it affords me, the opportunity to do the things that I do love and I have made at least that you know I came home and I worked for 3 years saved some money and now I have a business that's open half the year so at least a few months of the year I get to go play and I'm I'm really really happy with with that transition in my life that I'm not working 24/7 365 I'm working 24/7 250
5: mm-hmm. nice that works. Do you know, Michelle, when you were talking about that, I could hear the spring in your voice. How cool
2: is that? <laughs> thank, thank you, Sam. I feel it.
5: Yeah, very cool. I mean, Grant, uh, you're a really important part, you and Susan, um, of, for the sanity of Overlanders. When um, I was back from the big trip, um, I'd never heard of Horizons. So I never did. And um, a friend, Glyn Roberts, um, as it happens, who many listeners will hey. know, said to me, um, you should come. You should You should come on. You'll find kindred spirits here. And I thought, "Ah, oh, go to a big motorcycle meeting, not really that interested. And, but I thought, yeah, well, come on, why not? You've not been to anything like this before. If you don't try it, you won't find out. And off we toddled and we had a ball. We were surrounded by people who had exactly the same sorts of interests that we had. And it was like suddenly going to an oasis in, in real life. And what a fine thing that was. That was a very definite way of stopping any sensation of depression creeping in, suddenly being around people who understood us, the people that we didn't have to explain ourselves to.
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's a real key feature at the events that we really try to, try to encourage um, because your friends and family don't get it. And they really don't care. I mean, you can tell them, all we had this wonderful experience and blah, blah, blah. And they say, Oh yeah. What's on the footy tonight? Huh? <clears throat> what? <laughs> you know, they don't get it. They don't understand that they weren't there. Um, it, it's, well, it's like we've all had this description of going to on a trip in a car versus on a motorcycle. You know, one you're watching the TV is the car and the motorcycle you're in it they're still watching the TV or in the car. They aren't immersed in the experience that you had and they can't possibly understand what it's like. So, yeah, coming to an event where everybody gets it, they do understand, they've done it or they want to do it because they've gotten that that first bite of the bug. You know, I've got to go, I want to see things, I want to understand what's going on out there. I want to see the world and meet the people and understand what's going on. And it's it's a whole different way of thinking. And I think um, any motorcycle event that's focused on travel will give you that. We we want you to come to our events, of course, but (laughs) there are other events out there that are very similar. Um, So, yeah, get yourself to an event that deals with, that's focused on travel and not an event where it's, well, we're going to go out and we're going to ride. Well, yeah, you can ride any time. We tell people that come to our event, well, we don't actually do that much in the way of rides because you can ride 363 days of the year. This is your two days or three days at an event where you can talk to people and experience um, a connection with other people. You're not alone in your desire to get out and see and meet the world.
5: You know, things. one of the beauties is that you can go to a, um, an event like like we're talking, and you can meet a kindred spirit like Brian, who wants to ride 730 kilometres in a day, or you <laughs> can meet another kindred spirit like Shirley, who wants to ride 60 kilometres, and again then go and soak up the rays on a beach or in see Turkey.
0: three museums. Yeah, or that. Yes, there's,
5: there are those. <laughs> yeah. No, but I'm, I'm I'm joking there. But I mean, the reality is that's that's what happens. You end up meeting people who you think, yeah, I'd really enjoy travelling with you, yeah. um, mm-hmm. because you you just picked up the same sort of things and the same sort of interests and that sort of thing. And when you when you come away from an event like that, it's almost like your batteries are charged, and you can deal with um, everything that you've got to deal with at home, just w- with that spring again. <sighs>
0: So Grant, is that like, I'm I'm trying to push this change thing as a way of overcoming the depression, but is that not part of a change as well? Because what you're doing is you're, you're expanding or finding a new group of friends that are like-minded where, where sort of the thing lives on, Uh, you know, and uh, is that a way to, to get over the depression?
1: Yeah. Part of it is realizing that it's, it's not that you're weird. It's just that you're different. Than your old friends, and you have moved on, and you have changed, and you have grown, and now you need a different set of friends that have moved on with you. Does that make sense?
5: Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Another layer, because I yeah. I maintained my friendships. My high school friends, my book club friends, all of that. But I also then built this new, beautiful motorcycle community or became part of this motorcycle community, I should say. And that just added another layer of richness to my life to have that.
0: Yeah, exactly. You really were a bookworm. You just said book club friends?
2: Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm a bookworm.
0: Uh, well that's why you have that list that you you on your website of what's yeah. like over two hundred books of motorcycle books, motorcycle travel Ye- books.
2: Yeah. E- yes. Thank you to Nigel Grace for that. He's he's the person who put that mm. together. Another moto community friend.
5: Ah, Absolutely. Yeah. Michelle, just going back, um the blogs that you were talking about, your blog um, yeah. um post. Um, any chance of that going into the show notes? Because I'm sure oh, what sure. do you think, Jim? Because I'm yeah, sure no, people would be idea. interested in reading that. Yeah
2: yeah, sure, I'd be happy to share it. I'll send it to Jim.
5: Okay, great.
0: Um, is there any more to to talk about here? Does anyone have anything else to talk about when, when it comes to depression setting in afterwards?
3: Can I just say one thing, Jim? And it's not so much about depression setting in afterwards. but people who do what we've done, we're not elite. We're not different. We just have done other things. And I think it's probably a little... Um, I'm sure Grant had his tongue in his cheek, but to say that our friends at home are boring, um, I, I think we need to be very careful because our friends at home are the ones who made it possible in a lot of cases for us to do the things that we do. And they are still important. Certainly in my life, um we have I have friends from school who I still keep in contact with all the time and I've done a lot of different things to them but that doesn't make them less important or um, it doesn't make me any better than them it just means I've done different things to yes,
4: them so, sorry. Yeah.
3: I yeah.
1: so sorry. really good point. I'll go, I'll go along with that completely and yes my tongue was certainly in my cheek on when I said they're boring it's a, it's a different level of I don't know connection different Mm -hmm. level of things um to me motorcycle travel is a whole complex involving universe metaverse if you want that's that's different and i have motorcycle travel friends and i have non-motorcycle travel friends i have Mm non-motorcycle friends at all and they're all different and when i come back from a trip the ones that Are not-motorcycle travel friends are boring, temporarily, but then they become more interesting as I settle back into normal life. And I think Mm -hmm. that's the thing that we need to, to be able to accept that if they don't understand at all and could care less what I've just done, then I'm not really interested in them for now. Once I've come down from my high of a trip, and I get back into normal life, then okay, everything's fine and cool and they're they're good friends and we get along great. So I think that's something that has to be understood.
5: I would hate for anybody to think that anything that I have said um, is pompous and it's down talking people who are at home i'm fully yeah. conscious yeah. <clears throat> that this world would be um, an absolute madhouse even more than it is naturally <laughs> if if everybody was trying to travel i mean the reality is we couldn't go off and do our trips if people weren't doing um, their jobs, if people weren't taking their responsibilities at home seriously, the reality for many, many people is that they would love to go traveling and do a big trip on a motorcycle at the length of a continent or around the world, whatever. But because they've got responsibility, they can't do it. Um, I do hope that they keep their dreams alive and one day they might be able to do something like that. But also, you know, I've got many friends who stay at home and they're fascinated by travel, but they have got no interest whatsoever in doing anything more than maybe a three-week trip. That's, that's absolutely fine. But sitting on their sofa reading a travel book, that's a, that's, that's great. and And I really value all of these different aspects of humanity and my friends, because that's what we are. We're all different. But when we're talking about specifics coming back from a trip, yeah, we're different. So the case is, what do we do with those differences to make them into positives? Being pompous ain't positive.
0: But you yes, have to admit, the- and I think Brian will agree with me on this. People who aren't into motorcycles, they're just they're just strange. They're weird people, don't you think?
1: <laughs> yeah, like, what's wrong with you? Yeah, I just... have
2: to say, I feel like I'm the weirdo. And I think everybody in my family and most of my friends would probably agree with me in that. I think I'm I'm the anomaly. I'm the weirdo. And I I certainly have at times felt like I was maybe even being judged about, you know, taking the long trip or traveling by motorcycle, especially if I was traveling solo, I worried at times that some of my friends and family didn't approve. They thought it was dangerous, which absolutely we've talked about before, and it is, um, that it's self-indulgent, irresponsible, all sorts of things. Um, And I can certainly understand all of their perspectives. One person's comfort zone is another person's idea of confinement or a cage, but... You know, so I, I don't see it as as feeling like um, pompous. In fact, I'm, I might feel like a little bit of the weirdo and the anomaly, the other end of the spectrum where I don't feel like I fit in to a lot of the social norms the way that other people do. But that's OK, because I found my moto community that I can relate to in other parts of my personality. And then I still have my base of friends and family that relate to other parts of my personality. And so I feel like, you know, that's that's the beautiful thing about life as a whole, as we all know, that that makes the tap- tapestry of our lives that much richer when we incorporate all these different threads from different, you know, um, areas of our lives and different experiences and different inputs from other people and groups and friends. And so yeah. I I think that's just another layer like i said before of, of adding another layer of richness to our lives and being part of this moto moto community and i i do feel personally it's been one of the richest parts of my life and i'm super grateful for all the people that i've met and all the experiences i've had because of motorcycles nicely put yeah along with
1: that 100%
5: Yeah, you know, one I of the things that i realize when when i get back from um a bigger trip is um my friends they have been growing and they have been learning and so on and but they've been doing so within their own environment and i love finding out the things that i've missed while i've been away um and they're the experts on those things that i've missed it's up yeah. to me to have my eyes and ears open
0: to to wrap to wrap this up does anyone know anyone who's come back from a trip and and totally you know sunk into depression and and just never got over it is it, i mean cuz from what i know everyone gets over it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Everybody gets over it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's curable. Or else they
2: just stay out on the road. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) That's right. There's there's a couple of those, I think.
0: (laughs) Yes, there definitely is. Well, okay. Well, again, uh, Kevin, thank you for that, uh, for that question. It It was really good. It was interesting to hear what everybody had to say about that. I guess at this point in time, we will head on to plugs I know you have your plugs ready, and Grant, I'm going to start with you. What do you have?
1: Well, we have new events coming up for next year. Uh, If everybody can go to horizonsunlimited.com slash events, I would expect that you have that memorized by now and know that that's where you go. Um, We are working on the schedule for next year. We are anticipating a much, much better year than the last two we've had. Uh, We hope to have a full slate of events. We shall see. See how it works. Um, and we've been talking about a little bit about uh, connecting with people and traveling. And one of the ways to fight off the feeling of being alone when you're on the road is somebody mentioned going into go to a restaurant or a pub or something and talk to people. Well, you can also connect with the Horizons Unlimited communities all over the world. Last count was 815, I think it is, in over a hundred countries. So wherever you are, go to horizonsunlimited.com/community and check out the people that are there. Write it, send them a note saying, "Hey, I'm here. I'd like to meet, find out what's going on. Um, you know, go for dinner and have a chat, whatever." These people want to connect with you. They—they're excited. They're the the ones stuck at home but want to travel, and here you are living their dream. So yeah, they want to talk to you. They can help you out, and it's a great way to make some instant friends anywhere in the world it's just an amazing community i'm constantly seeing emails from people that just made a new best buddy how wonderful people were how helpful they were they couldn't do enough for me stuff like that um so check out the community and of course we talked last time about destinations get your favorite local destination in there so that everybody else in the world can find out all these cool hidden motorcycle special places Check it out, horizonsunlimited.com slash destinations.
0: The uh, community thing, that's, that's almost like a, like a helpline for people who come back feeling depressed. That's fantastic.
2: Yeah, do that. That's <laughs> perfect.
1: <laughs> anyway, what else do you have? Um, I was going to mention Graham Field has a new book out since Graham isn't with us at this point. Um, he has a new book out. Check it out, grahamfield.com.
0: Uh, Graham, it's Uk, isn't it? Dot.co.uk. Mm, yes. yes. That's
1: right.
0: Okay. And um,
4: Brian, what have you got? I've got a couple of things, actually. Um, first of all, um, a thing called a crash card. Does anyone know what a crash card is? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're trying to roll it out in Australia over here at the moment. And um, there's one um, area in. Um, Hornsby uh, up in New South Wales where the, the local council have got it up and running. And um, we're trying to get it up and running here in Victoria and all over the place. So it, Aussies look out for that. It's um, it's a simple little card that's inserted inside your helmet with your details on it. And it's um, a, a little reminder to um, uh, emergency service people that um, – all your details are in there of your blood group, um, any allergies you've got, etc. And if you are unconscious on the side of the road um, and you can't talk to people for whatever reason, um, all that information is available inside your helmet. And there's a little dot that goes on the outside of your helmet. I think it's a great little idea. I'm not saying that everyone's going to crash, but it's just a simple um, little thing that um, can probably save a life. I was speaking to a paramedic the other day who said that, um of the the fatalities on the road uh 25 could be saved by people knowing a little bit about first aid and how to treat people on the side of the road you think of that a quarter of the people could be saved if you rock up to the center and you've got a little bit of first aid knowledge and you know how to do it so that's another thing that we're looking at
0: uh brian some jackets have uh, a spot on their sleeve. A lot of jackets do, I guess, a yep. small zipper. Yep. And they'll have the, the international sign on, on stitched onto it to put that card into. And I'm just wondering about the helmet thing, because, you know, if there's a motorcycle accident, the last thing you want to do is remove somebody's helmet, in particular, if you're not able to clear a spine, which many people aren't, unless you're into advanced first aid. So you'd have to take the helmet off to get this card then.
4: Yeah, yeah that's right. But it's, it, it, it is designed for paramedics. Uh, the ability paramedics to find out who's I got see. it.
0: So just for the paramedics to look
4: at. Yeah, that's okay. right. That's exactly right. And um, I've done a just in a first aid course where they, you know, you, the only reason you take a helmet off if someone is having difficulty breathing. And if they're having difficulty breathing, you've got to know how to take the helmet off. And that's pulling the liner out. And you should know how to do that. And um, that's pretty easy, actually, <laughs> if you know what you're doing. But um, the other little plug I've got is – Yesterday went out for, for lunch with uh, a couple of old mates and there was a guy there who has written some fantastic books on um, uh, particular breeds of motorcycles and he goes in-depth um, to such an extent that he's now uh, known as – he's professionally sought after by, by collectors around the world um, to authenticate vehicles, particularly motorcycles, but things like um, – um, Ayrton Senna's race car and stuff like that. He's, he's got a client who flies him all over the world checking out uh, exotic machinery to make sure it's authentic. His name is Ian Falloon. Ian has written books on all sorts of motorcycles, uh, things like um, Ducati's in particular, Moto Guzzi's, I'm looking at um, my dining room table at the moment. I've got um, the BMW R90S book sitting on the table with um, a few bits and pieces. I see uh, a couple of mirrors and uh, <coughs> a couple of engine insignias sitting on the table. And I'm, I've got a, re- a source uh, to fix up my my uh, little classic R90S that I'm building. Um, but Ian's Ian's knowledge and his research in relation to anything to do with motorcycles is First class. He's so good. He's been over to um, the US uh, judging um, uh, the authentications of motorcycles and cars with Jay Leno. He's on that that committee when they do those things over in California. So Ian's a great guy. His books are available. They're not cheap, but by gee, they're full of um, anything and everything you'd want to know about your particular motorcycle. So if you can find him, look him up, Ian Falloon. I double
0: Okay, and Shirley, what do you have?
3: Um, what he said.
0: Okay, that's times <laughs> two. Do we repeat that or just? <laughs> uh,
3: I'll
1: just
0: just play it again. Just play it again. Right, <laughs> Michelle, what do you have?
2: Um, well, I, in keeping with uh, the conversation as far as books, I just was going to mention I actually saw a Facebook post, a memory of mine from a few years ago pop up, reminding me I'd been to Iceland and they mm. have a tradition that I read about when I was there and I thought it was really neat. So I wanted to share it. Iceland has um, a kind of a, a gift giving or exchange uh, tradition that people on Christmas Eve exchange books. Um, so that's the present and this is the best part of it. And I swear I'm not making it up that you exchange books and you spend the rest of the night curled up in bed, reading and eating chocolate. I think that just sounds amazing. (laughs) So, um, uh, I am throwing that out there. And again, just want to remind people of how many incredible motorcycle books there are, uh, really that run the gamut, memoirs from racers, um, of course, lots of adventure travelers and some fantastic books that you can find out there. So um, I just want to encourage people with Christmas and the holidays coming. That's kind of a cool tradition if you want to share that with your friends and family. And I have a book that's in the mix. It's available on amazon.com, The Butterfly Route, um, paperback or e-format, either one. And uh, so, yeah. Just keep that in mind. Any books that you want to give, not necessarily mine, but anybody's. I'm always a fan in sharing experiences with uh, your loved ones. And those are a good way to do it.
0: But you get your own chocolate.
2: That's right. Okay. All right. Well, no, I don't know. Maybe it could be a package. I I think
0: it'd be nice to do that. And then you might even be introduced to a new chocolate that you're not used to. Of course, you could end up getting dark chocolate when you can't stand it, though.
2: A lot of (laughs) people don't like
0: dark chocolate.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Good point.
5: Sam, what have you got? Oh, just a quick mention on dark chocolate, actually.
2: <laughs> perfect. Before you
5: say, Birgit and I've been giving my mother dark chocolate for years, thinking she loved it." And a couple of weeks back, she plucked up the courage to say, "You know, all the dark chocolate you're giving us." <laughs> oh no! Uh, I know, bless her. Uh, um, I've that's got a plug funny. that's kind of in keeping with um, tonight's show. Um, I'd I'd like to to. Sort of um, mention um, some some very very cool open hearted, um, wide minded people. Um, these people are running an organisation in the UK called Mental Health Motorbike, and I'm going to ask um, Jim and Beth to put um, the link and graphic in the show notes, please. Um, they started off, I think, because. Uh, COVID hit people so badly, people who were just used to being able to go out of their front door, climb on their bike and um, figuratively let the hair, um, wind through their hair and just go out and ride and do all of the things that we've been talking about tonight. And of course, it, um, people have just been um, so much more shut up and people, you know, hardcore motorcyclists were really struggling with it. And um, just people who just ride every so often were suddenly finding, I can't. And it, it just sort of spread and people started, to, um, these guys started this site up and it's an opportunity to talk to kindred spirits. Um, they've got qualified and trained counsellors who are motorcyclists, so they speak your language and they think your way too. So it's um mental health motorbike. It is UK based. But I have no doubt that there will be other similar organizations in other parts of the world. So the point is, if you're beginning to battle a bit or you have been battling, um, then go online, have a look and see what you can find. There will be people out there that can help you.
0: Sam, just to be clear, is this only like for motorcycle related issues?
5: It's, that's all I've seen um, as the key sort of mixing point. But people tend to talk about, other, you know, other things that are going on in their lives as well as okay. withdrawal from, from motorbikes. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's there for motorcyclists. Oh, great. Okay.
0: All right. Well, that wraps things up. We're just in time. Thank you very much everyone that was fantastic. I cool. think we had fun as
5: always.
2: Yeah, for sure. Thanks everybody.
5: Thanks to the guys for sending in the questions. It's always nice when we get listeners questions, isn't it?
2: Yeah. They spark some great conversations, don't they?
5: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that wraps things up for this month's ARR Raw, and thank you to my co host Sam Manicom. Starting with Sam Manicom, he lives in the UK. He's got four books and audiobooks that follow his eight year motorcycle journey around the world. His website, Sam Manicom.com. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are from Australia. They also have published their own books on motorcycle travel. You can buy them wherever you get ebooks at their website, AussiesOverland.com.au. Michelle Lampfair is a motor traveler that also has a couple of great motor travel books The Butterfly Route and Tips for Traveling Overland in Latin America. Both of those titles available on Amazon as well. She has a motel for us motorcyclists and anyone else called the Chalet Motel. You can find out more about that at chaletmotelcuster.com. And of course, Grant Johnson is from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub literally for our adventure motorcycling community. Horizons Unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information as well as a huge forum of dedicated travelers that connect you with other travelers. They also put on the hub meets around the world. You can see a worldwide list of hub meets at their website horizonsunlimited.com special thanks to our producer elizabeth martin my name is jim martin thank you for listening join us again next time oh and don't forget if you want to get uh, your question or a topic suggestion in here drop by our website you can also look at the show notes I have some more information in here you can make comments on the show notes adventureriderradio.com